Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome back to the Defiant Spirit. I am Baruch Levy, also known as B. I am the creator of the Defiant Spirit, the Defy Your Number Enneagram system, where we explore all things Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning, the exploration of meaning, um, the Enneagram, an ancient personality roadmap of how to live out your meaning in your life. But sometimes I, I veer and go off down the more spiritual paths, and sometimes that takes me back to my to my roots, to my stomping ground, to being a rabbi, to teaching Kabbalah. I still consider that my my sort of origin story and the the foundation upon which I stand. Um, And I really like going back to it with, um, I don't know, a renewed sense of interest. You know, when I was a congregational rabbi, I didn't have a choice. I I was expected to talk about it week in, week out. You want to suck the life out of anything, right? Make somebody do something. And like I did it willingly. I loved it while I did it. But you can only keep something going for so long when it's a have to, not when it's a get to. And so now the holidays are mine. I don't do them for anybody else. I do them for my family. But most of all, I do it for myself. So we engage in the holiday of Passover. And every year I do personal exploration, spiritual preparation for the holiday of Passover. I don't just show up and shove matzah down my throat. I do show up and shove matzah down my throat, but not only. And I can't say that I did personal spiritual preparation back in the day when I was expected to do it, um, you know, do Judaism, lead the Passover seders for the synagogue and all that. It was. It's too hard to be a participant and a leader at the same time. And so one of the things that I've reclaimed over the past few years, it took me a while, is my own spiritual journey and utilizing Judaism as a, as a primary pathway. And it still is a primary, not exclusive, but primary um, for me and my spiritual development. So I'm going to talk to you a little more about Passover as I've come to really know it, love it, and experience it. But it's not your grandmother, your grandfather's usually um, Passover story, their understanding. Certainly wasn't my grandfather's understanding. We would go to his house for the uh, the holiday and, you know, we would sit down and we'd read and every single word of thy, thou, them type English um, to get through the Haggadah, which is the little booklet you use to tell the Passover story. And it had no meaning to me. The kids were just, you know, crashing the whole time. When do we eat, right? Some wonderful memories, but you know, it was nostalgia. It was, it was tradition, tradition, tradition. It wasn't spiritual work, but now it is for me spiritual work. And this is a sophisticated text. I mean, the book of Exodus, which is what we read from, also known as Sefer Shemot in Hebrew, the book of names, is a deep teaching on identity, on everything that I talk to you about on this podcast sometimes using the Enneagram, oftentimes talking about the work of Viktor Frankl. It is 
um, an ancient teaching that said the same things prior to Frankel, prior to the Enneagram. And why not turn to some of this original source material to draw inspiration and motivation in our lives? Well, I do, but I don't do it as, you know, Sunday school, nursery, childhood tales. This is a, as I said yesterday, or when I re recorded the podcast a couple of days ago, I put it out um, recently, part one, this is part two. In part one, I said, you know, most of the teachings in the ancient um, Bible are not rated G. They're not even PG. They're not even NC-17. They're rated X. And certainly you can you can get into the deeper, darker side of Exodus. I don't think we'll get there today. I want to kind of, you know, keep it um, a little more succinct. It takes a long time for me to unpack that conversation, but still sophisticated and relevant nonetheless. So when I'm doing spiritual preparation for uh, Passover, I do a lot of writing, journaling, writing around my identity. Who am I? And for me, that comes down to, you know, what's my name? Not Baruch HaLevi, but what's my essence? Because for the Kabbalists, the mystics, the idea of a name isn't the thing that it says on your driver's license. It's the thing that it says on your, on your heart and in your soul. And we each have our own fingerprint. We each have our own soul print. It's uniquely you. The work of this lifetime is to figure out who that is, right? To figure out who I am. It sounds easy, maybe, you know, oh, it's my name. It's, you can't, um, you can't just blurt it out. I can't just say my name. I've got to discover it. And how do you discover it? By going into the most difficult, challenging, um, darkest aspects of life and of our life and the, the things that challenge us the most, the things that bring us to our knees, the things that bring us to the brink, you know, those moments of the dark night of the soul. And we all have them. And if you haven't, you will. And when you're in the depths of that, that's called from a mystical Jewish Kabbalistic perspective, Mitzrayim. That's called Egypt. Egypt isn't just a geographical place. This isn't only a geographical tale of the Israelites going from Egypt to the land of Israel. It's about going the journey we all make, but they sort of modeled it of going from Mitzrayim, again, Egypt, but at a deeper level, comes from the Hebrew word metzar, which means constriction and narrowness and being imprisoned in our struggles, in our addictions, in what Dr. Viktor Frankl called our inner concentration camp. He didn't say that lightly. This was a man who lived in endured, who lived and endured four concentration camps. <laughs> And he said, because people would say to him all the time, but Dr. Frankel, right, I won't ever know a concentration camp, God willing, like you did. So does, you know, this work of logotherapy of living my meaning still apply in my life? And what he would say is, you may not have, you know, been in, God, thank God, Auschwitz or Birkenau or, you know, one of the other concentration camps, but you have known a concentration camp. And if not, you will. What does that mean? Because if you've lost a loved one, if you face depression, if you go through divorce, if you if you face your own mortality, or you know, newsflash for you, 
when you go through your dying process, you will know an inner concentration camp. You will know what it's mean to be reduced, to go through that place of narrowness. Um, I've counseled many people who have described the dark night of the soul exactly like that, exactly like he describes suffering in the Holocaust, right? Where you're hopeless, you can feel nothing but despair, you're brought to the brink of uh, of sanity, of, of, of not wanting to live. And so that is an inner concentration camp. And we all have known it, or we are in it right now, or you will know it. But the message of the exodus of the story of Passover is, and, and Dr. Frankel and so many other great men and women throughout history is, you don't have to be defined by those circumstances. You don't have to be reduced by those circumstances. You don't have to succumb to those circumstances. No, you can't control your circumstances. But what is at the heart of Viktor Frankl's message, logotherapy, and almost every conversation we have together, is that you don't have power over your circumstances, but you have the power to choose your response to those circumstances. And that's the message of the Exodus. That's the message of Moses and the Israelites journeying from Mitzrayim, narrowness, to a place of Israel, Israel, expansion or freedom. And that's the message of Passover. And so you can see or listen to yesterday's podcast about it's not called Exodus in Hebrew. The second book of the Hebrew Bible, remember Genesis, Exodus, Exodus is Shemot. Shemot means names, and it's a story about identity and what happens when we forget who we are, when we forget our essence, or Frankel would say our why. He or she who knows their why can endure anyhow. When you don't know your why, you can't endure anyhow. When you don't know your essence, when you don't know your name, um, you, you lose your way in life. And so the journey of the Exodus of the Book of Names is about reclaiming our why, reclaiming our purpose, reclaiming our name, collectively, individually. And that's the work of Passover, to reclaim your name, to take back your power from all those Mitzrayims, from all those constricting places that bring you um, that, that sense of Mitzrayim, that sense of narrowness, that feeling of being imprisoned, of feeling like you're you're trapped within your own inner concentration camp. I don't care what it is. When you give away your power to someone or something outside of yourself, you end up forgetting who you are, why you're here. You forget your essence. You forget your power. You forget your name. We all do it all the time. That's why we have the holiday every year. So we can check back in to see where have I given away my power? Where have I lost my sense of my why, my purpose? Where have I forfeited my name? Okay, so the book of names opens up with a few names of all of the survivors of the generation of Jacob and then Jacob's sons, um, which become the 12 tribes, and then their generation uh, after them and so on and so forth. And then eventually they they lose their way. They lose their identity. They, they lose their names. And they end up in slavery. They end up um, being incarcerated um, by the Pharaoh, by the, the Hitler of their time who reduced them to 
no longer human beings. He reduced them to slaves. I think I mentioned yesterday, but one of the things that almost all genocides have in common is that a people is reduced to something less than people. They're reduced to other. They're reduced to animals or less than animals. One of the things Hitler did was he took away the individual's names, the individual Jewish people's names, and he replaced them with what? With numbers. So Viktor Frankl had on his arm 119104 because he wasn't Viktor Frankl to them. He was a number. You can't murder another person, another human being, when you look into their eyes, when you know who they are, when you know their name, but you can put numbers into a gas chamber and reduce them to ashes. And so if you look at all genocides, there's a process of reduction, reducing, dehumanization, reducing them to, to numbers, which is the opposite of a name. So this is a story about how to reclaim your name. And there are many ways that that is explored and experienced in the teaching and in the holiday of Passover. Today, I just want to talk a little bit about reclaiming your name. And then um, hopefully I'll get to a part three if I don't run out of time before Passover. And we'll talk about different rituals around the Passover Seder table to, to do that. But I want to pick up where we left off yesterday, which was we go from all those names at the beginning of the story and then to a bunch of pronouns. Pronouns depersonalizing the story. So it's no longer about Moses, Moses, uh, Moses's mother, Moses's sister, Moses's father. It's just about he and him and her. And it, the story talks about Moses's origins, right? His mother having relations with his father, watched over by his sister, because remember, his mother put him in the Nile in a basket to save him because there was a decree to kill all baby boys. But None of this revolves around names because all of that is gone. The book of names no longer has any names because it's a book about identity and these people have lost their identity. And it's a book about reclaiming identity. Well, how does that happen? One of the great teachings of the Passover story of the book of Exodus is not usually taught this way. And it's not going to be surprising to you, but I don't just say this to win points with feminists. It's a prototype of feminism. I would argue authentic Judaism is a prototype for authentic, true feminism. And that is because, yes, Moses is the protagonist of the story. And he comes out pretty soon as a leader. But he didn't, he wasn't born on third base. How did he get there? Because the text shows us how, and it's what's called in the Talmud, the righteous women of the Exodus. So who's behind the scenes in this story? Who's behind Moses' greatness? Well, before Moses is Moses, of course, he has a mother and a father. But the mother, we know her later her name is Yocheved, but there's no name right now. But it's this brave woman who brings a baby to full term, knowing that quite possibly he'll be taken from her if it's a he and he'll be murdered. The courage, right? You hear courageous stories like this in the Holocaust of women who continued to have babies, to give birth, knowing what they were facing. You know, the, the man showed up for what? Um, I think the average time of um, sexual relations, like six and a half minutes, and he disappeared. The woman carried this baby to term for nine months under those circumstances, bravery behind every, you know, 
um, great man, there's an even greater mother, a greater woman. And that it's not where it ends because then his sister watches over him while he's in the Nile. And so another woman that um, gives this this boy the, 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 the opportunity to live. And then from there, the baby goes down the Nile, baby Moses, who hasn't been named yet. And the daughter of Pharaoh finds him and brings him to... Um, into her world and nurtures him and, and gives him life. And I even skipped over some of the most important women, the midwives, right? These midwives have a central role in the story because when Moses' mother was about to give birth, they're Egyptian. They have no allegiance to the Israelites, the Jewish people. They should have followed Pharaoh's decree, but they defied Pharaoh and they brought forth this baby and they challenged Pharaoh. Whenever I read that story about these midwives, I think of um, Rosa Parks, right? The power that she demonstrated in her act of defiance of resistance, same power that these women, these midwives, the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder back then, stood up to the mighty Pharaoh, a god in that world. It's interesting, too, that the midwives are the only two people in this time of the text whose names are mentioned. Why are their names mentioned? Because they know their name, right? Shifra and Pua, but that's not just their name. They know who they are. They know why they are. They know to whom they answer, and it's not to Pharaoh. It's to God. It's to a greater source. It's to themselves, their conscience. So they defy Pharaoh because they know their name. So you follow this baby, down the river into the life of um into the world of the daughter of pharaoh we don't know her name we don't know any of the names and then she gives this baby boy a name and it's the first name we've heard other than the midwives since the beginning of the text and she calls him moshe which means to draw forth and moshe in english moses of course is um somebody who's going to go into the lives of the israelites and help reignite their name, their identity, to reawaken who they are. And so we pick up in this, with the story of Moses most of the time as if he's the hero. And he is a hero for many reasons, but he's only the hero because of all these heroines who knew who they were, who braved their circumstances, who derived their power from not without, but within. And that is why um, Moses knows who he is. So it's so interesting because the first act of Moses after, you know, he's named after he grows up is that he is a young man when we really meet him for the first time in his first, you know, um, autonomous act. It's, you know, he didn't do anything to get saved out of the Nile. He was a passive participant, but now he's an active participant in his story. And the first thing he does is he sees two Israelites being beaten by, or sorry, an Israelite being beaten by um, taskmasters. And he kills a taskmaster. He kills a, an Egyptian. And the, the reason, or the, um, the Torah commentator Aviva Zornberg, an amazing female Torah commentator, modern, is she says that you can see through this a verb that's used over and over again. And she says that Moses, is, Moses sees, he sees the injustice, 
he sees the abuse. He sees his brethren, his, his you know, Israelite brothers. He doesn't know they're his brothers yet. He thinks he's Egyptian, but he sees. And this is a man who truly sees. Why does he see? Because he was taught how to see. What does it mean to see? Does it mean he sees with his eyes? You know, partially, but at a deeper level. He sees the truth because he was raised by these women who saw the truth. These midwives and his mother and his sister and, and um, his adoptive mother. These are women who see themselves, who see their power, who see and know their name. And so they taught this to this man. And Moses grows up and he goes out and he sees the world. And he sees through the abuse of power. And he sees through the injustices. And he sees what needs to be done. And so his first act, not coincidentally, is that he goes out into the world and he, um, and he does what's right. And then he goes on to awaken the people in different ways, but not the least of which is to give them a sense of vision, give them a sense of hope. He, he helps them see what's possible, what's possible for themselves. He helps them to reawaken that spirit within themselves. Um, but he's not alone in doing that. So I'm not going to go too deep into it. Maybe I'll do it next year because it's just worthy of a, an entire treatise upon itself. But there's one last group of women. I guess we'll wrap this one up with the righteous women of the Exodus. Um, Moses wasn't ultimately the one, according to the mystical tradition, that awoken the spirit of the men, uh, the male Israelites, to fight back, to take back their power, to uh, make the journey from slavery to redemption. It was actually another group of women, according to the mystical tradition. And who were those other women besides Moses' mother and his sister and uh, his adoptive mother? It was all of the women who were married to the men. It, were the, it was the wives of the Israelite men because the Israelite men had lost their will to fight. And traditionally, it has been men that have gone to fight, to defend the, the tribe. And still to this day, it's disproportionately men who are casualties of war. And so we always needed and we probably always will need men to, um, to step up and to confront abuse of authority and go to war when necessary. The problem was is that this group of men had lost their will, had lost their... Their, their power had lost their name. They'd forgotten who they were. And so there's lots of different proof texts to show that the, the reason why these men remembered who they were is not because Moses showed up and gave a great TED talk. I'm sure he was, you know, compelling in his own way, although it says, you know, he's not the most eloquent of speech. So maybe not. Maybe he wouldn't be giving a good TED talk, but he didn't need to. Why? Because it wasn't him that called the men to arms and to regain their strength. It was their wives. And how did that happen? Because the women of the Exodus retained a memory of their greatness. They retained a, a sense of, of, of their identity and knew who they were. And they imparted that to their husbands, to their men. And how did they impart that? According to the tradition, they did that through sexuality, through 
playing with their husbands, sneaking off down to the river. They're in separate barracks and they'd find their partner and they'd go down to the river bed and they would take some fish and they would take some wine. They would, you know, store it up and sneak down there and have a little rendezvous. And in that moment, right, of sexual foreplay and reclaiming that spark, the, the spark in their, in their men's eyes lit up and was reawakened and their identity was reawakened. And you can imagine, right, all they knew were, was backbreaking work. All they did all day long was be, uh, build the, the pyramids for the Pharaoh. And they lost their sense of being a man, of being human being. They felt like animals. But their wives, first of all, knew the way to their husband's heart. But secondly, they also restored a man's identity an ancient radical text, and it goes much more intricate than this. I don't have time um, to, to go down this path. But nonetheless, they played sex games with their husbands. And husband and wife made love down on the banks of the river. And when these men came back to the barracks, they were not the same because they got a taste, a glimpse of who they were. They, they, they had a, a memory of what they were and where they came from and had within them reawakened this piece of the divine, this piece of their true identity, their true power, their true name. And so this is what set in motion the Exodus. This is what set in motion the desire to do what it would take, and it would take a lot to climb their way out of the prisons of Egypt and make the long journey back to the land of Israel. But that's what this is a book about. It is about remembering your greatness, remembering your power, reigniting it however you want. That's one way. Um, but really thinking about the ways that you've lost that spark, that divine spark in Hebrew, it's called ruach, your, your breath, your energy, your spirit and making the journey back to freedom by remembering who you are and where you've come from, remembering your name. So I'll pick up in the next podcast tomorrow about what happens around the Passover table um, to reawaken the Exodus, because it's not that, although, you know, maybe that happens the night before in the bedroom, but that doesn't happen around the Seder table. But what does happen are rituals to reignite the spirit. That was one way. There are many ways. Um, and it's a very powerful tale when you start understanding that what's supposed to happen around the Seder table is not just eating matzah, is not just saying ancient words, but it's different rituals to help us break through through our addiction, to help us break through our struggles, to help us break through the ways that we have become reduced, imprisoned, stuck in our lives. And there are many ways, but it always comes back to awakening our spirit, awakening our ruach, our energy, and remembering who we are, remembering our greatness, remembering our name. And so this is a really important teaching about the righteous women of the Exodus and their, their courage, their resolve, their resilience, instilling it into their husbands, into their sons, into their people. And 
um, setting in motion this great ancient myth that also plays out in our modern lives in so many ways. But it's a holiday and it's a story about remembering who you are, remembering your greatness, your spirit, remembering your name. And so that is part two. You can listen to part one again um, prior to this around the role of names. This is again about reawakening our name. And then part three will be about sharing, telling the story of our name. So thank you for tuning in. I know this is a, a little different vibe than normal. And thank you for just letting me riff. It's a little more sermon-esque than my usual conversations, but um, I'm having fun. I hope you appreciate it and would love to hear from you about who you are, your journey, how you've lost your name, how you're reclaiming or you reclaimed your name, and how you're living out your name in this lifetime. Until then, defy your number and live your name. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. The Defiant Spirit is an offering of Soul Center to Center for Spirituality, Meaning, and Healing. And if you'd like to learn more about the Defiant Spirit or Soul Center, get more inspirational content, access to a variety of online programs, or see how we might work together to discover deeper meaning in your life, greater purpose for your life, or live the Defiant Spirit power within your life, visit defiantspirit.org. Until then, keep living your defiance.